So I'd invite you to take a copy of the scriptures if you have them. If you don't have one with you, we do have uh, those green and brown Bibles sitting near you uh, that says the story across the top. You're welcome to use that. If you don't have a Bible of your own, you're also welcome, please, to take it and consider that our gift to you. We think it would do you more good than it will do us uh, sitting in a box on a trailer waiting to be uh, set out on a chair. So if you need a copy of the scriptures, please take that one. Uh, as our gift to you. So we're going to be in John chapter 4, and if you were here last week, you might remember that I kind of left you hanging. We kind of told, (laughs) there's no bitterness though, right? Uh, I kind of told half the story, and then we just ran out of time, and so I had to kind of stop. So we're going to pick up where we left off in John chapter 4, which uh, is on page 737 of the Story ESV Bible, if that's the copy of the scripture that you're using. So as we pick it up, let's, let's, let's recap, right? Let's, let's set the scene one more time. So what's happened at the beginning of chapter 4 of John's gospel is that Jesus had been baptizing, actually his disciples were baptizing, um, in, uh, in the area of Judea, which is where Jerusalem is located. And uh, Jesus found out that the Pharisees, you know, the religious leaders who are starting to get suspicious about this kind of new fledgling uh, ministry, uh, have found out that Jesus was making more disciples than John the Baptist had been. And so they kind of start getting interested uh, in his ministry, not because they want to come to Jesus in faith, but because they want to shut it down, so to speak. And so Jesus leaves the region. He heads north uh, to go to Galilee, which is kind of his hometown. He, he's from a town called Nazareth, which is up north in the area of Galilee. So he, be, he departs for home. And last week we looked at the way that he went about his journey toward Galilee. We revealed some things about Jesus, revealed some glorious, powerful, beautiful truths about who Jesus is and what he came to do. So we saw the glory of a missional, intentional Jesus in his decision to go through Samaria You remember I said that most of the conservative religious Jews of that day would have added days to their journey to go around Samaria because they didn't want to participate or have any dealings with the Samaritan people. They didn't even want Samaritan dust on their shoes. That's kind of how they thought about the Samaritans. And so they would have gone all the way around. But Jesus, he intentionally went straight through Samaria, I believe, because he wanted to have this meeting with this woman at the well that we're in the middle of right now. So we saw the glory of a missional, intentional Jesus. We saw the glory of a human Jesus as he was wearied from his travels and rested at this well. So John so often emphasizes the the deity, the godness of Jesus, which is absolutely right and true. So it's good to get a reminder that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He lowered himself to take on the form of humanity uh, to himself. And we see a glimpse of that humanity in his exhaustion from his travels. We saw the glory of a boundary-breaking Jesus in his willingness to engage this Samaritan woman, which was very countercultural. It was very kind of against the norms and customs of the religious Jews, for sure. Uh, And even culturally, just to speak to a woman was a social boundary uh, that he broke through. And he even asked her for a drink from her bucket. And John tells us Jews don't use with Samaritans. They don't share drinking vessels with 
the Samaritans. And so we see Jesus breaking through boundaries that he sees as keeping this woman from a relationship with himself. And so when there's something standing in the way of a relationship with God through Jesus, he will break down that boundary. We see Jesus willing to do that. And then finally, last week, we saw the glory of a life-giving Jesus and his invitation to receive living water, eternal life. He said, the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water, living water welling up to eternal life. And so we see this generous Jesus, this this life-giving offer of living water. And so we come now to the kind of the middle of the conversation that he's had with this woman, and she's kind of missed the point. He says, if you had asked me for living water, I would have given you living water. And she's like, wait, how do you have living water? Like, we're in a desert, and this well's been here a long time. Are you greater than our father Jacob? So she's, she doesn't quite get it. Uh, and then he says he had offered her in verse 14, whoever drinks of this water that I give him will never thirst again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And verse 15, the woman said to him, this is her response to his offer of this living water. Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So she misses the spiritual truth that Jesus is pointing toward and thinks he's referring to a literal water that never you never thirst again if you drink this this water. But I think in her response here, we start to get a glimpse into her personal pain. We start to get a glimpse uh, into the burden that she is carrying. And I think we see a clue that she is bearing a burden of shame by the fact that she is drawing water at noon, which is the hottest part of the day. Now, in this culture, drawing water just for the ordinary tasks and, and of daily life, uh, the, the, the drawing of water was the responsibility of women at this time and in this culture. And so in order to avoid the sort of high noon heat of the day, most of the women would either go in the morning to fetch water for the rest of the day, or they would go in the evening, kind of at sundown, to collect for the next day. Because they were trying to avoid the like squelching heat of the noonday sun. And yet here Jesus sits at the well in the middle of the day, and he encounters this woman who's come to draw water. And as we begin to learn about her life and about her past and the secrets and the shame that she's holding, you kind of get an idea that she's not just staggering out there at noon because that's when she happened to wake up or whatever. She is avoiding people. If she were to go in the morning or in the evening when the rest of the women of the town were gathering water, I wonder what sort of chatter there might be around the well. What sort of gossip, what sort of sideways glances, judgmental stares, the can you believe what she did whispers around the well that she would be subjected to. And so our friend in John 4 comes to the well at the hottest part of the day to avoid the pain of public disgrace. Well, Jesus is about to reveal to this woman and to us that he knows exactly why she's hiding in disgrace. And so in verse 16, he instructs her, Go, call your husband, 
and come here. And hidden behind his instruction is the glory of an omniscient Jesus. That's a big fancy word for all-knowing. Jesus knows everything. Just as we saw a glimpse of his humanity in his weariness and his exhaustion from travel, here we get a glimpse of his deity, of his godness, because he has supernatural knowledge about this woman's life. You see, he knows what her answer is going to be when he says, go call your husband. He knows that what she's about to tell him in her response uh, is not new information. Just as we saw his humanity, now we get a glimpse into his supernatural knowledge of this woman's life, the details of her life. And he's about to kind of list some things to her that probably are, uh, that are certainly the reason that she is hiding in shame. And he already knows it. And he's going to draw it out with this subtle question. Go call your husband and then come back. And just as Jesus knows the intimate details of this woman's life, friend, you can be sure today that Jesus Christ knows you inside and out. He sees your life. He knows your burdens. He knows your sins and failures. He knows your hopes and dreams. He sees your heart in all its complexity and brokenness. And here's the good news. He loves you anyway. He sees all of your brokenness and fallenness and failures and weaknesses, and he still loves you. One of the greatest glories of the gospel is that the depths of the darkness of our hearts is completely known to God, not a secret. And rather than turning us away, he welcomes us in, in our brokenness, to receive the gift of eternal life. Just as he is offering to this woman in John chapter 4, he offers us today, I know you, I see you, I know your life, I know your burdens, I know your failures, I know your hopes, and I want to give you new life. So let's see how this unfolds. So Jesus gives us this instruction in verse 16. Go, call your husband. And so the woman answers him in verse 17, I have no husband. Right? Very plain. End of story. Come no further. No husband. Got no husband. Right? J.I. Packer, the theologian, has famously said, a half-truth masquerading as the whole truth becomes a complete untruth. And I think that's what we have going on here. We have a half-truth. I have no husband means she's currently not married, right? And this is true. But it's not the whole truth. And because of that, it becomes an untruth. And Jesus is not content to let it lie. So look at his response to her in verse 17, kind of the, the second half of that verse. He says, You are right in saying, I have no husband. What you have said is true. For you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. Boom. Mic drop. Pick your snarky catchphrase, right? At first glance, this truth bomb, if you will, seems kind of harsh. Like Jesus is calling her on the carpet. He's kind of put this little uh, dangling carrot, if you will. Go call your husband. And she's kind of batted it away. No, I don't have a husband. And he's like, you're right, you had five of them. And you're living with a guy now that you're not married to. And so we see 
the shame that this woman is carrying. Now, in, in our day, oh, let me say this. Um, so it seems harsh that he's like calling her on the carpet for her sins, right? Like, wow, Jesus, that's a little kind of hardcore. Maybe you should like soften your approach a little bit. But I think if we look a little closer, that we're actually going to find that his exposing of her relational brokenness shows us the glory of a compassionate Jesus, a compassionate Jesus. You see, this woman has been through five husbands and is currently living with a boyfriend to whom she's not married. Now, in our own day and culture, this would be considered a remarkable relational failure, right? You've been married five times, and now you're with a sixth guy, and he's not your husband. But in this day, in Jesus' day and culture, this would have been downright scandalous. This was a breaking multiple times of everything that these people would have regarded as, as sacred and right and true. And this woman, time and time again, is casting those things to the side and is living uh, in a, a, a repeatedly and intentionally broken uh, and sinful way. Her laundry list of failed relationships sexual promiscuity, social rejection, and personal disgrace have led her to complete social isolation. This woman doesn't have friends. This woman doesn't have people she can call on. This woman is coming to the well to draw water in the heat of the noonday sun to avoid being around other women. And I think if we keep this scenario in mind, Jesus bringing her history out into the open won't be seen as an act of of judgment or anger, like he's trying to make her feel bad about it. I think we'll see that Jesus exposes her sin not out of a malicious desire to embarrass her or to rub her nose in it, but with a deep sense of compassion for the sadness of her situation, the loneliness in her life the endless attempts to find satisfaction, the isolation and rejection that characterize her life. She's been through man after man, hoping to find some lasting joy, some satisfaction that lasts longer than a night. Never satisfied. As the old country song says, she's looking for love in all the wrong places. And Jesus exposes her relational sins and his knowledge of her relational sins, not as an opportunity to shame her, but as a way to reveal to her that the nagging, never-satisfied thirst for wholeness and healing that she is seeking is actually there to lead her to Jesus himself as the answer to her deepest needs. The thing that she's been longing for, the the hope, the the belonging, the relationship, the companionship, uh, the, the peace that she's been trying to find in this list of husbands and non husbands is actually a misguided expression of her need for Jesus, of her need to drink from the living water that flows from his heart to all those who will receive in faith. Let me say this to you today. If you think that a husband or a wife will satisfy the deepest caverns and longing in your soul, 
you're deceived. And you're setting yourself up for constant disappointment and heartache. It is only Jesus and the living water that he offers that can provide the wholeness and peace that you crave. So don't place such unattainable expectations upon a man or a woman, a husband, a wife, a relationship. There's no way it's going to fulfill those deep longings in your soul. It just won't do it. Now, relationships are good. Marriage is good. God made us to, uh, to enjoy relationships with one another. But if you think that the deep longing and craving in your soul is going to be met by another human being, you are setting yourself up for the same kind of disappointment and heartache that we observe in this Samaritan woman. Now, I also think This is maybe a little bit more broad of an application. I also think that we Christians can learn from Jesus' example here. I'm not saying we need to walk around calling people on the carpet for their sins necessarily, but we tend to view sinners as our enemies. The church tends to view sinners as enemies, those people out there with all the problems, rather than seeing the sadness of their spiritual brokenness and moving toward them with compassion and with love and with mercy. You see, Jesus isn't afraid to bring a sinner's shame to the surface. He he does this right here. You're right. You've had five husbands, and the one you're with now is not your husband. But it's always in an effort to meet that shame with grace that runs even deeper. His grace runs deeper even deeper than whatever shame and disgrace you're carrying. And Jesus is willing to engage the shame in order to meet it with his grace. May we as his people carry his heart toward sinners. Because by the way, we're all in the same boat. (laughs) Every one of us is a broken mess being redeemed by Jesus Christ. So let's take his heart of compassion and mercy to everyone we meet. Well, what's most impressive to me in this story is that she doesn't run away. Because this has got to be uncomfortable, right? So Jesus has just said, I know your laundry list of sins and brokenness. I know the secrets that you're carrying that lead you to the well at noon. And he's called her out on it. And she doesn't run away. Her deep secret shame has been exposed, and instead of dismissing Jesus, just like everybody else, just like all the rest of them, she sticks in there. I think her decision to remain in conversation and to engage Jesus, even after her hidden sins have been revealed, is is kind of courageous. I think there's there's a boldness, a courage there. And it offers a contrast to Jesus' own assessment of the human condition in chapter 3, verse 20. Remember when he was talking to Nicodemus, the rabbi, the kind of Jewish religious elite? He said to him in verse 20, Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. He said, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. That's what he says about human beings. And here we find a woman living in sin, in a rebellious way, her sin called out, Jesus revealing her sins, and she's not running away. She's not recoiling. She's not fleeing back into the shadows. 
She stays there under the, the light of Jesus' knowledge, the light of Jesus' revelation. So I think it's an interesting contrast even to Nicodemus himself, who we don't really know how he responded uh, at the end of chapter 3. We find him later in the, in the gospel. But the end of chapter 3, it didn't tell us how Nicodemus responded to Jesus' uh, conversation with him about being born again. He just kind of disappeared. And yet here we have this woman whose sins are called out, and she's willing to remain in the light, so to speak, uh, to investigate the claims that Jesus is making. So she doesn't leave, but she doesn't exactly stay the course either. She doesn't exactly say, oh, Jesus, tell me more. Let's talk about my sins a little bit more. She kind of skirts the topic, right? She changes the subject with a theological question. In verse 19, uh, you see her say this. I perceive, sir, that you are a prophet. Uh, Yeah, no duh. All right. I perceive that you are a prophet. And here we go, verse 20. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you, that's a plural you, as in you Jews, you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So she brings up this, uh, the notion again of the divisions between the Jews and the Samaritans. Remember I said last week that the Samaritans by this time have their own Bible, their own religious traditions, uh, their own temple in a different location. This is where we worship, right? And so she brings up these boundaries and distinctions, like this is how the Samaritans do things, this is how the Jews do things. And so she kind of skirts the topic, let's not hang out on my sin anymore. And interestingly, Jesus kind of goes with her. I think it's interesting that Jesus doesn't go, no, 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 we're talking about your sin, woman, let's, let's stay there. He goes, no, okay, we're going to go right there. So she says, I perceive your prophet, our fathers, you know, Jacob, Joseph, worship on this mountain, but the Jews say that you have to worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus is going to respond to her theological question, pondering, and in his explanation of worship, we're going to see the glory of a universal Jesus, a Jesus that's for everybody, every, every nation, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, political identity, doesn't matter. Jesus is going to give us a vision of who he is that breaks all of those boundaries. Let's look at his response in verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, that is Mount Gerizim in Samaria, nor in Jerusalem is the place, will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. Samaritans, you worship what you do not know. We, the Jews, worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Pause. By that, he's meaning that the promises of God, of a Messiah, of a kingdom, of this kind of uh, completed and restored world, were made to the Jewish people who God had chosen as his people in the Old Testament. And so all of these scriptures and promises that Jesus is now fulfilling were given to the Jews. And so when he says salvation is from the Jews, that's what he means. It it began, the the work that God was doing started with the people of Israel, and he's about to kind of start blowing up those categories. He says salvation is from the Jews. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here, because I'm here, Jesus, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. 
For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Here's the short version of that. It doesn't matter. She goes, the Samaritans worship here. The Jews say you have to worship there. Kind of put, puts that in Jesus' court. What do you say about that? What do you, what's the right? Which one of us is right? Right? Which people has it all right? Are we going to worship this way? Are we going to worship that way? Where do we have to go? What systems do we have to follow? What rules do we have to obey? And Jesus says, all of that is changing. All of that is changing. We are at a juncture in history, if you will, when Jesus is walking the earth, when all of the ethnic geographical boundaries around who are God's people and where God's people worship are being utterly undone. True worshipers will worship not in a place. They'll worship in spirit and truth. They will worship with spirits alive in him and feasting on the truth of Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. So true worshipers will worship neither here nor in Jerusalem. That is, the way for your worship to be acceptable to God is to come through me. That's what Jesus is saying. All of those systems and boundaries and barriers and the way that things used to be, those things don't matter. You come to God through me. Just like he'll say in chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Faith in Jesus Christ removes every barrier that would keep someone from worshiping God. Jew, Gentile, slave or free, male or female, those distinctions no longer keep us away from salvation. Jesus is doing something fundamentally new here. And the offer of living water, eternal life, is flowing freely to everyone, no matter who you are or where you come from. That's what Jesus is saying. I don't care what mountain you worship on. You worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And in fact, verse 23 says, the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Did you know the Father seeks people? You know that God is after you? You know that God is pursuing you? God is trying to get your attention. He's trying to capture your heart. You remember Jesus' intentionality in traveling through Samaria? Nope, I'm going through Samaria. You remember the divine appointment that he came here to keep with this Samaritan woman? Could it be that the Father is seeking you and me? to worship him through faith in Jesus and so receive living water to satisfy your thirsty soul. Yes and amen. It is. The Father is seeking such people to worship him, not on the basis of any religious system or any rules and regulations that you have to obey or any card with little boxes that you check off, went to church, read the Bible, said the prayer, walked the aisle, helped the person across the street, it's not about checking off boxes. It's about coming to God the Father through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. Well, look at her response in verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, 
He will tell us all things. This seems to me to anticipate a certain reply. I think she kind of knows what Jesus is going to say to this. She, it's kind of like she's fishing a little bit. Well, when the Messiah gets here, he'll make all this clear. She's beginning to understand who Jesus is. Her eyes are beginning to open to her spiritual need and Jesus' ability to meet it. And so she makes this statement, sort of like a leading question, fishing for him to make a definitive statement about his identity. When Messiah comes, he'll make clear all of these things. And Jesus obliges. And in his declaration, we see the glory of Jesus as the promised Messiah. Look what he says in verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The grammar in the Greek actually emphasizes the words I am. The Greek ego is, is I and ami is I am. So really, literally, it's like I, I am. So there's this emphasis and the structure where he says, I am he which is a reference to the very covenant name of God himself. So the people of Israel knew God as Yahweh, which was the Hebrew verb to be. That's how God had introduced himself to Moses. He told Moses when he sent him to Pharaoh, tell them, I am sent you. So when Jesus says here, this woman says, the Messiah will tell us, when he says, I am he, Make no mistake, he's identifying himself with the God of Israel. And he is saying in no uncertain terms, I am the Messiah. I am the anointed one, the one sent by God to fulfill all the promises that he made through the prophets of the Old Testament. I who speak to you am he. I am. And so we see the glory of Jesus revealed as the Messiah the sent one. This gets interesting. We'll wrap up here. Just then, his disciples came back. Such interesting timing. Providential timing. God's at work here. Even in the length of the conversation, when the disciples come, they come at this key moment. Just then, his disciples came back. And not surprisingly, they're stunned to find Jesus alone with a Samaritan woman. All of those would be shocking. And speaking to her, What's he doing? He's breaking all of the social and religious customs that we know about. Uh, but it says in verse 27, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Probably wisely. They're going to keep their questions to themselves for a minute. Maybe we'll ask them about this later, but like, I'm not going to in interrupt, so to speak. So, but when they show up, the woman leaves. So look in verse 27 there, or 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, See a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ, the Messiah? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So the disciples show up and the woman leaves. And I want you to notice two things about how the woman leaves this conversation, this engagement with Jesus. First, she left her water jar. She had come to the well for the purpose of drawing water. And when her conversation with Jesus comes to an end, she's forgotten all about the water. She's forgotten about the bucket, 
which is probably not that easy to like make or acquire another one. So it's a pretty important piece of equipment. She is out of her mind. She forgot. I think she's so overcome with the truth and the love of Jesus that the very purpose for her trip to the well just went completely out of her mind. She went to the well for a drink of water, but she's leaving the well with water for her soul. The water jar, which she drew water with every single day from this well, water that never quenched her spiritual thirst, it's like no longer necessary, no longer needed. She had found in Jesus' invitation the living water that quenched the thirst of her desperation and brokenness so that the water jar was useless to her. Would you leave your buckets? I wish we would just leave our buckets behind sometimes, that we would leave behind the things that we drink from day after day, thinking maybe this time it'll satisfy. Maybe this time it'll give me what I need only to come up dry and thirsty once again. Oh, that we would lay them at the feet of Jesus and instead receive from him the only gift that will ever satisfy our thirsty souls and trust in him for eternal life. So she left her water bucket. Doesn't need it anymore. Doesn't matter. And here's the second thing. She went straight into town to speak with people that she has been deliberately avoiding for who knows how long, probably for years. She leaves the water jar and she heads for the village and she finds people and she says, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Indeed, her, her shame is so removed and so undone that she was confident Not only does this Jesus know everything I've ever done, he loves me like no one ever has. Friend, I can't see your heart today, but Jesus can. I don't know the burdens, the pain, the shame, the disgrace that you may be carrying around, maybe even running from, but Jesus does. Just as Jesus saw the brokenness of this Samaritan woman and generously offered her the gift of living water, the hope of eternal life. He offers the very same gift to each of you today. You see, he's already taken your sins upon himself and paid their penalty before a holy God so that you can lay them down and walk in new life with the peace of his presence today and the promise of life with him forever. I love that line in Great is Thy Faithfulness. It says, peace for today and bright hope for tomorrow. That is the promise of the gospel. Jesus says, I know your brokenness. I know your shame. I know your disgrace. I know your heartache. I know the dreams in your life that have been broken and shattered, and you're trying to pick up the pieces. Won't you leave it behind? Won't you come to me for new life? Won't you trust in him? Won't you take a drink of this living water? All you have to do is ask him for it. He told her that just a few verses before. He said, if you knew who it was that was asking you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus has living water. He has eternal life. He has hope and peace and a future and he's holding it out to you. All you gotta do is ask. 
Lord, give that to me. Let me have a drink of this living water, and he will give it to you. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that you would help us to see our, our place in this story. Pray that you would help us to see how we are just like this Samaritan woman, hiding in her sin and shame, broken and thirsty, desperate and empty. And I pray that you would give us in our hearts the courage to own our sin. Yes, that's my life. Yes, I'm the broken woman at the well. But to lay those buckets down, to lay down the things that we think are going to satisfy us and to receive from the hand and heart of Jesus living water that becomes in our souls a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Lord, would you grant the faith, the boldness, the humility to come to you in simple trust and to ask for a drink of this living water. Pray in Jesus' name.